Om Ajnanati Mirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurun Viditam Yena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Vande Sri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sahodito Gurudaye Pushpavanto Chitrosandotamonu Vande Hamsi Ramakrishna Abhaya Charanasako Sukado Paramanando Sundaro Subala Priyo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Raraganda Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Mindavanishwari Vishabhanu Sude Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shikuri Vashna Guru Parampara ki jai, Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Sri Sri Krishna Arjun ki jai, Gaur Bhaktavrinda ki jai, Gaur Premanande Reading from chapter 4, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, text 4. Arjuna Uvacha, Aparam Bhavato Janma, Param Janma Vivashpataha, Katam Etad Bijaniyam Tomado Proktavan Iti. Arjuna said, the sun god, Vibhishwan, is senior by birth to you. How am I to understand that in the beginning you instructed this science to him? So, as we've heard in three introductory verses, Krishna has given Arjun some sense of the history of that which he's teaching him. Veritably, he said, it's as old as the sun in this world. So it's ancient, and the longer that a thing endures, the more credibility that it has. Like I've said, our dreams don't endure as long as our waking experiences, so we give more credibility to our waking experiences than we do to our dream experiences, even though they're quite short in the big scheme of things. Dreams come, they go, and they're forgotten. And our waking experiences tend to make a stronger impression on our psyche. So just a simple example to help us illustrate the point that the endurance of a thing in this world lends credibility to it. It's interesting because we, of course, are an enduring agent of action in this world. And the world, in a sense, is moving around us. Krishna says later in the Gita, Jiva Bhuta Mahabaho Yaedam Dharyate Jagat. This Jiva Bhuta, this Jiva Shakti, this other energy of mine, he says, after describing the material energy, is of a different nature, and it, its relationship with that which I've described, the material energy, bumir, apo, analo, vayo, kamano, the material elements, is that the second energy, superior energy, maintains the, the latter, maintains the former. So this is the relationship. Although, of course, it's to be understood that while we turn on the show, so to speak, of material nature as units of consciousness, albeit generated by Bhagavan, by the Purusha, the Mahapurusha himself, Mahavishnu. While we turn it on, we tend to be taken over by it at the same time. Just like I've given an example before, if you turn on the television, it requires that viewer to give the television meaning, but so the viewer is infinitely superior to the television itself, but the power of the television is such that it can take over the life of the viewer 
that's a problem. So similarly, material nature has taken over our lives. So some indication that although we are superior to material nature, it's contradictory at the same time. We're subject to being influenced by material nature, overcome, overwhelmed, so to speak. Not extinguished, but almost seems as such. So, of course, this gives rise to to a nuanced idea of consciousness, such as we have in, in Mahaprabhu's Yuga Swami's Achinti Beda Beda, compared to the simplistic idea of the Dvaita. It's a problem. If we are consciousness, if there's anything in the world that most resembles God, it's us, because we're consciousness, and God is consciousness, and matter is achit. So nothing material, comparatively, is like him. That's why the Shruti Upanishads often direct us to the idea that you, if there's anything like God, it's you. It's you. If a man is in a cave his whole life and doesn't know what the sun is like, how will you tell him about that? When the sun is not just a light, it's vegetation, right? it's uh, growth, it's health, it's good for the mind, as we know. <laughs> Living in the rain sometimes can, can get, to the, get to the mind a bit. We have to think about it and philosophize about it in relation to the sun and how it's necessary for growth and so forth. But the point being that to explain all that to somebody who's lived in a cave their whole life and has never even seen the light of the sun is a difficult thing to explain. The sun is like the symbol of life, right, in the world. Sometimes it's, it's often described like, and metaphorically, like God himself. So much central to our existence. So, anyway, to explain all that, fellow's lived in a cave, he's never seen even vegetation, so to speak, of avocado trees and mango trees, you know, this is all the sun in a sense, without which there are none of those things growing in his case. So, you know, it's a big, huge task to explain to him the whole thing, wherever you get with that. He has no experience of that. So you make a little hole in the cave while a ray of light comes through. This is the sun. That's fascinating enough in itself. Light. He's never seen light before. Wow. And from, you build from there. So the Upanishads, in that way, kind of like make a hole, a crack in the cave of our covered material existence to begin to tell us about Goloka, about Vaikuntam. It's effulgent. It's not dark, like here. That's the beginning. Or it's like you, your consciousness, its consciousness, and so forth. So there's a simplistic kind of uh, unity between ourselves and God that's described for good purposes. But as we go and develop further the teaching, then we find there's much more to the story. And what leads us, obviously, to suspect that is that in the midst of hearing about the idea that we are superior and of a different nature, categorically different from matter, we're a unit of light and luminosity and knowledge and joy and so forth, compared to material things that only have as much joy in them as we invest ourselves in them. It's very practical. If we invest ourselves into something, it gives us joy. If it belongs to somebody else, it usually gives us pain, <laughs> especially if we want it. So when we extend ourselves into a house and it's my house, or into a car and it's my car, then if something happens to that house or my car or my house, it, it's a problem. It's not a problem of somebody else's house. 
burns down, unless you've expanded your sense of self, obviously, and extended it further, which is possible by giving, by taking the soul, in a sense, contracts. Material nature covers it more, and by giving it expands. So your sense of self expands. You can identify with others' sorrows, of course, as well, but that's along the path of yoga in as much as yoga is about self-sacrifice and so on. So anyway, in the midst of hearing about the difference between ourselves and, and matter, matter only matters because consciousness exists and thinks about it, conceives of it. Who would care? Who would know? If matter had independent existence of consciousness, who would know? Who would care? So we are the knower, we are the carer, the feeler, and so forth. We are looming large, you know, as this discussion proceeds along in relation to matter, but it should hit us like a brick that despite that, I'm covered by matter. So some contradiction here. So again, he turns on the TV, but the TV depends upon him to have meaning, but the TV may turn him into a couch potato when he could be an athlete. He could be an Olympic, uh, Olympic gold medal winner. He's become tied to the couch. Interestingly enough, that's the nature of our material predicament. We've tied it. You know the story of the guru and the disciple. They were living together happily, and then the guru went off traveling for several years. And one thing led to another, and the disciple thought he needed a few extra things, like they were living in the forest, and he thought he'd get a cow and have some milk and so forth. And he needed help to take care of the cow, so he got a wife and so on and so forth. And he got kids and all these entanglements. Several years later, the guru comes back, and the, the disciple's hardly recognizable in this predicament. And Guruji returns, oh, Guruji, you've come back, and so is that you. That's you, you look different, but anyway, I'm the same. And you used to cook for me, I'd like to come for dinner. Let me go and take a bath in the river, and then I'll return. But before going, the, the disciple says, yes, I would love to cook for you. I remember those days, it was so wonderful, but now I've got you know, so many now responsibilities, so many things are holding me back from being able to do that. But, you know, I remember those days, and certainly I'll cook for you, and boy, I wish it, was, wish it were different. But So the guru goes and bathes in the river, and then it's getting late, and the dinner's been cooked, and so the disciple, well, where is he? And he goes, he says, Guruji, the meal has been ready. And, and Gurudev's there on the bank of the river holding on to a branch in the river, like a, that's, you know, a branch of a tree that's stuck in the river. He's holding on to it. He says, help, help. The disciple says, what, what's, what are you talking about? Help, this tree is holding me in the river. This branch is holding me in the river. I can't get out. The disciple says, well, just let go of the branch. The branch isn't holding you. You're holding on to the branch. My, you're getting old. <laughs> so he lets go, and he says, yes. And so, of course, the implication is nothing's holding you back but you. You're holding on. You've extended yourself in the matter and given it a meaning that it wouldn't have otherwise to you. By the two letters, very small, word, my, a big thing happens. That self that is by nature superior to matter becomes covered by matter. So this, I can't say, should hit us like a ton of bricks. And so our, we have to nuance, nuance then the idea that we are consciousness and superior to matter. Yes, but we are subject to be overcome, not extinguished by it, 
but covered by it. And so, of course, then, and this is what comes in this discussion here, that there's a difference between God and ourselves. Arjuna is asking the question. We heard he's speaking about the antiquity of the uh, yoga, so that it will have more credibility in Arjuna's eyes, that which endures has more credibility. The Ivy League school is big because it's been there for a long time, and Ivy is growing up the walls and so forth. That's the idea of the, you know, calling it the Ivy League. It's been around for a long time. So that which endures has more credibility. That's why we have more credibility than matter. We're an enduring agent, and we sense that in the world. It is a sense that we... We endure and we're bigger than matter, bigger than what, so to speak, meets the eye, what we can perceive through the covering of matter, the limits of our senses. So Krishna wants to bring this sense to Arjuna, and in the context of speaking about the history of it, like I say, it's as old as the sun, it brings a question into Arjuna's mind, which then sets the stage and enables Krishna to make this point that there's a difference between yourself and myself, between Atman, Paramatma, between the Jiva and Bhagwan. There's a likeness. That's the good news. So we can get close to him. That's the good news. He says in the Gita later on in the fifth chapter, what Bhoktaram Jagatapasam Sarvaloka Maheshvaram. It's very intimidating in a sense. Bhuktaram Jagatapasam, everything is meant, I'm the enjoyer, everything is meant for me. Sarvaloka Maheshvaram, I control everything. Now, it's getting a little tight here, you know, like, what about me? <laughs> is there any room for me? He says, Suridam Sarvabhutam. Actually, no, but, yes, <laughs> if you understand that I'm your friend, you become my friend, then what is your position? You become so big, you become the friend of the person who is the enjoyer of everything. You become the friend of the person who controls and owns everything without having to try to control it yourself, which is folly, and, and to acquire enjoyment, happiness, and so forth in the world, to live in friendship with the one who is the supreme enjoyer. So, so there's a difference between, anyway, Bhagwan and the jiva. And this is now is going to be brought out very significant here in the fourth chapter, as I maybe said last night, because it's a book about knowledge, a chapter about knowledge, and the beginning of the knowledge is, you know, there's a reference to the guru and the means of acquiring the knowledge, which is special through a special channel called the Guru Parampara. It's ancient. It's Dharmam to Sakshat Bhagavad Pranitam. It originates in Bhagavan himself. He's the guru. Acharya Mambijani Navamanita Karichit. I am the Acharya. In a representative sense, he is me. These things. But more here, as the stage has been set by these introductory verses that give rise to the question that Arjuna's asking here. Wait a minute, you're sitting here on the chariot and he spoke to the sun god? So the knowledge then is going to come is knowledge about this first question gives Krishna a chance to speak about his omniscience. Omniscience, incidentally, is not said by Rupa Goswami Prabhupada to be one of the qualities of the jiva, you know, he enumerates 64 qualities of, of Sri Krishna. And then he says the jivas can have these qualities partially, to an extent, up to 50 of them. Omniscience is not one of those. That's after 50. Still, there's a kind of all-knowing 
nonetheless, that comes for the liberated soul. But in the context of bhakti, it becomes a little muddled in a sense. The knowing is loving. They don't even know. In one sense, they don't know anything. They don't even know that Krishna is God, right? That would get in the way of the intimacy that they seek, which is real knowing. So that's a kind of all-knowing, essential knowing. As I've said before, in love you know what to do. There's an essential kind of knowing, not any kind of extra burden of knowledge that one's carrying around. So, the omniscience of Bhagwan, And also this question gives rise to Bhagwan Sri Krishna speak about his eternity. So his omniscience and eternity. And this is in relation to him as he is sitting there on the chariot. That becomes apparent because he's asked the question, well, goodness, I mean, uh, you are with the sun god. Well, humans don't give lessons to the gods. The gods give lessons to humans. So that means you're not human, but you have a human, look pretty human to me. You have two arms. Everybody knows the gods have four arms and numbers of heads and so on and so forth. So that's hard for me to fathom, he's saying. If you were there in another form, that I could relate to, but that would mean that you'd be in a different form now, so your form wouldn't be eternal. And if you were there before in a different form and now took birth in another form, you wouldn't remember. So this is a hard sell. You said a lot about yourself here. And could you give some support for that? <laughs> He's asking, like we saw last night, Bhaktosime Sakachiti. This is a real secret. When you speak ordinary knowledge, the dissertation on ordinary knowledge is, is basically how to acquire things. Maybe or things or qualities or how to live better in this world. And special knowledge then, for a few, look at the Veda, for example, the tree of knowledge. It's vast, voluminous. There's no probably more voluminous body of literature on earth. And the vast portion of the Veda, the larger portion, is about what? What did Krishna say in the second chapter? That's right. Tri modes, three gunya. Tri gunya vishaya veda. This tri gunya bhavarjuna. Tri gunya vishaya veda. He says the Vedas are mostly about the three gunas. The three gunas means this world and how to move within it. It's a system for being happy within the material world. It really works, too. Going against that to be happy is like um, you know, wanting to drive on the road without a license or in the name of being free. You don't learn the rules of the road, and there's every likelihood that you could crash and bring a sudden end to your freedom to drive the way you want to. So there are some rules for becoming happy, in a sense. There's a way, there's a system. This is what the Veda is about. But it's the general discussion in the Veda is how to be happy in the material world. And the message is, is to bring your activities for acquisition and so forth in relation to God, to color all of your human activities with some godliness. So you have all these basic human activities. You have birth, you have the name-giving ceremony, you have the first grains, and you have you know the the upanai, upanai and the, the, all the different uh, marriage, you know, and so forth. All these sangskars, 
big turning points in life and so forth. And they're all celebrated and, and colored religiously and so forth. So anyway, to color our whole human existence with a religious tint, this is the general knowledge. But then the smaller portion, the uttarmimamsa, the, the latter dissertation, the smaller part, the Upanishad, of course, that's about the fact that you're not human. You're divine yourself. You've been coloring your human life with a godly crayon, but you are yourself divine, as I said earlier. Wow, that's a different idea. And so then you're not human. Your humanity, it, it will be fully experienced, the full potential of humanity will be experienced when, in the context of that, taking advantage of all that human life affords us, you realize that you're not human, that you're human of consciousness is a human dress and so forth. <clears throat> so that's the smaller portion. That's the uncommon knowledge. But the great Vidibhusan Sri Baladev in his Govinda Bhasha, our Gaudiya Tika on Vedanta Sutra, he says, that's really not very special knowledge either. After all, if I say, world of forms and names are here today and gone tomorrow and we endure, that's not so hard to grasp. One is the opposite of the other. Now, if you take the idea that the names and forms are temporary and you are eternal, and then from there you go, but there are names and forms that are eternal, then it becomes really special knowledge. Then it becomes rahasyam <laughs> uttam. This is very secret. Even the Upanishads don't really dare to go too far with that. For that we come with the Bhagavatam, the final word of Sutrakar, Veda Vyas, a very much more nuanced idea of consciousness and its potential and the nature of the absolute and so forth, our relationship with. So this is very special knowledge. This is Rahasyam when Rahasyam, Rahasyam means secret, Rahasyam Uttam. And Bhaktosime Sakhajiti. This is for friends and devotees, only this kind of knowledge. So, in the context of saying that, I also pointed out that a, dev a devotee, so to speak, a servant, just says, yes, yes sir, yes sir, yes sir. But the friend, because there's a shade of intimacy there, then in confidence, you can ask questions. So, Arjuna has been allowed, so to speak, to ask a question. Not that he hasn't earlier, but here it's made clear that in the relationship between the guru and the disciple, there's some scope for asking questions. That's good to know. We need to create an atmosphere like that, where we feel we can ask questions. Because there should be questions about scripture, what's the meaning, and so on. Not just, you know. We should be preoccupied, in other words, with the spiritual practice and the teaching, the sambandha, the abhideya, the prayojan. These are the appropriate types of questions for the most part. So, he's asking a sambandha jnana question here. And sambandha jnana is being given here. This is the kind of jnana we find in the jnana yoga chapter. Sambandha jnana means what? It means the knowledge of how things are related. There's a famous Upanishadic statement, the dictum, it says, sarvam kalo vidam brahma. You know it? Sarvam kalo vidam brahma. Everything is brahma. All things are brahman. So the Dwaitans, they like this very much. Everything is Brahman. Pujapat Sridhar made a nice comment. He says, no, 
everything is Brahman. There are all kinds of things, <laughs> and they're all Brahman. <laughs> it's not that the things are done away with, and there's only Brahman. No, all things are Brahman. All things are related to Brahman. There is Shaktis, you know, the material nature, the Jeev Shakti. So the things are there, and they are all have Brahman as their origin, and in that sense, they're one with him. But they're different enough to be things. So there are many things. There is variety in the context of a dynamic unity. So this is the kind of knowledge that's being given here in this chapter. As I said, he doesn't start out to say, and this is avatar tattva, he's going to talk about his omniscience, right? About his eternality, why he comes to the world, and when, what, what is his purpose in doing that, and so forth. He doesn't say, I'm Brahman, but by a superimposition upon myself that nobody can understand or sort out what I'm talking about, <laughs> I become Brahman with qualities, although there are no qualities, and there is no world, I enter the world, and besides that, uh, in doing that as an avatar, I also appear as all these jivas who aren't really jivas, but think they're jivas and are individuals and so forth, and, and I come to teach everybody that that's not what's up. It doesn't say anything about that <laughs> in this chapter. It's Sambandagyan. When we speak about bhakti as opposed to gyan, and we, we glorify bhakti, we mean to glorify bhakti as a path, and there's, as I say, there's knowledge in love also, an essential kind of knowledge. So there's, a, there's scope for cultivating this kind of gyan, sambandagyan, the knowledge that uh, underlies bhakti. There's knowledge underlying bhakti. That plane of Vrindavan, the highest domain of Krishna's sport, the ground is knowledge. It's a ground of knowledge that arises out of as, as I said before, young girls from there who have no education come here, and they have so much knowledge. Nana shastrabit chara naikunipano sadharma samstapako lokana mitakarano tribumani manyo sharanyakaro bandi rupa sanatana prabhu yago siddhiva gopala go sikko sami prabhu ki jai. They studied the scriptures. They didn't really study them, it says. They drew from the scriptures, from the broad base of all the revealed knowledge to write their own books, which really become the Bhakti Shastras. There are Bhakti Shastras, of course, in the Bhagavad and so forth. But from there, they wrote so many. And it's mind-boggling if we study their work, where they drew all these statements from to make it clear. If the Bhagavad... You see, oh, it's so nice. The Bhagavad, it was meant to be a clear an emphatic definition about bhakti and its efficacy. Vyasa was despondent after writing everything. Narada came to him and said, yeah, it's no wonder you've cheated the people by not coming right out and saying it. What is the position of bhakti? So you go now, you're qualified, go sit. Samadhi nanusmala tadvicheshtitam. Go sit in samadhi, meditate on Krishna Lila. See what happens. The Bhagavatam is what happened. Right? And so here it is. It's all about bhakti. The Bhagavatam's all about bhakti. And still, we read the Bhagavatam and we don't even understand it. It's about bhakti. People have other interpretations. The Goswamis came, and everything they wrote was really based on the Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam was the hub around the wheel, that the wheel of their understanding of all the scripture revolved. They drew from so many places, and then they harmonized the statements from everywhere that seemed to say otherwise in relation to the Bhagavatam, which they demonstrated was the hub around which all the scriptures 
are moving. Fascinating work. So the point is what? That they have so much knowledge. These are village girls, gopis. They aren't even of age to be educated. <laughs> Not that they would in Vrindavan. Anyway, neither the boys for that matter. They're just go people. Cow people don't get an education. It is gan shunya bhakti, as Mahaprabhu said. No, there's none of this burden of knowledge here. It gets in the way of loving. So no education there, but and, and there, there's no need for knowledge. Knowledge gets in the way. The knowledge that Krishna is God gets in the way. Even Krishna loses sight of that. By the force of their love, Krishna forgets that he's God. It's very clearly brought out by the Goswamis and Vishwana Chakravati Thakur. Krishna forgets. So there's the power of their love. So they always say, Jai Radhe. Right? It's not that he loses his position, but he's teetering there. So this is a very rahasyam, uttam, very secret place, very secret kind of knowledge where God is having a problem. <laughs> um, here we're being taught God is omniscient, and here we're, we're going deep and we're teaching God loses his omniscience. He doesn't lose it, but it gets covered by love, practically. So the point is that in that plane there is no need for knowledge. But Srinamarsh once gave the example in America is the largest military industrial complex, but we don't see the tanks on the streets on the 4th of July. They don't bring out the missiles and everything and show this, this Aishvarya, this power. They used to do that in Russia. You know, that would be the, we got these weapons, we're big, you know, kind of a thing. But in America, the military industrial complex is bigger, but for the sake of peaceful interaction amongst the people, you don't see that anywhere. So it's in the ground, so to speak. But if the country is attacked, then whoosh, missiles are everywhere, and they'd be tanked. We'd be surprised. God, that's where the taxpayers' money's been going. It's just, wow, you know, there's a, it's a lot of power there. So, so similarly in Vrindavan, there's no need for knowledge. But then don't think that those girls don't have knowledge. Don't don't think that those coward boys, the jesters, that they don't have knowledge. That Krishna is not the be all and end all of knowledge. That bhakti is not the be all and end all of knowledge. And how will we know? when those girls and those boys come here in their sadhaka deha with Chaitanya Dev to teach about bhakti, their knowledge is overwhelming, comprehensive, and of a special kind. But to speak of making the material knowledge look small, it makes knowledge of Brahman look small and boring. It looks dull hmm? compared to the, the, the bright and shining picture of Krishna in relation to his Shakti. Brahman is dancing with the activation of his own Shakti. So this is what comes out in this chapter. This is Sambandagyan. This is the first teaching then, after an introduction, that gives rise to Arjuna's question. And he will, he will see we'll here tomorrow. He begins to speak about his omniscience and his eternality. The difference, I remember all the past, like you don't, we're different. This is the kind of knowledge. So this Gan Yoga means this book goes like this in this yoga progression. First, Nishkam Karma Yoga, where the fruits of one's activity are not just renounced or foregone in a spirit of self sacrificing, but they're offered as well to Bhagwan. We call it, in a very general sense, we call that what? Karma Mishra Bhakti. Karma mixed with Bhakti, which gives efficacy to karma here. Nishkam Karma, so karma with action 
according to scripture, without desire for the fruits, when the fruits are offered to Bhagwan, that hint of bhakti makes it meaningful. And what does it do? It brings us to Gyanmishra bhakti. Gyan, knowledge of the self, which to the extent to which we have it, we needn't act. Certainly not in relation to temporary things. And as we'll find in the fifth chapter, with the progression of that knowledge, we can karma sannyas, we can give up the actions. And then we go to yoga, ashtanga yoga, sixth chapter, mixed with bhakti. This is the progression. The sixth chapter ends with bhakti. Here's the whole yoga discussion. There's bhakti throughout. And it ends with what would bhakti unto itself do then? And the middle six chapters open up. We're getting a glimpse into that here where Krishna's taking the trouble, the time, but out of his kindness to speak about himself, what he's like, the nature of God. Very, in a very cryptic way, in a, in a small way. Middle six chapters then, with, after bhakti, we've come to Shuddha bhakti. Or bhakti, rather than jnana, karma mixed with bhakti, bhakti mixed with little karma. Rather than jnana mixed with bhakti, bhakti mixed with little with jnana. Or bhakti mixed with little yoga. And shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti. This is, the, of course, the, what it culminates in. And as Krishna's talking about bhakti, so much comes out about him. What is his nature? What he's like? Not just that he exists, which is really the large contribution of the Christian theologians, which is doubted anyway, despite the arguments of Aristotle and Aquinas and others and so forth. But here, in India, there wasn't, it wasn't a big issue whether God existed or not. The nature of God. So that will all come out the more the bhakti is in the picture. So don't think that this chapter, Gyan Yoga, is about really something other than, than bhakti. It's about the gyan that comes in the context of factoring and in bhakti into your spiritual practice. And in a big way, it begins by differentiating, not equating, but differentiating Arjun, the archetypal here, Jiva, and Sri Krishna. Any question? What's the time? 7.52. Good. It's a wet day, huh? This is like... A long winter here this year. Very long winter. No? I have a small question. The, the word maintains, and the jiva maintains uh, material nature, that always doesn't seem like the perfect fit. I was kind of wondering what I could look up you know, what the Sanskrit is. Dharyate. Dharyate. It's in the seventh chapter. Sustains it. It's the basis. I can, I can see that it animates it. Animates it. But yeah. that it like, maintains it, because it, would it not exist if the Jeevas weren't? Not as it is, no. It, it, it's in a primordial state where the modes are in a state of equilibrium. So when the Jiva consciousness is injected or impregnated, as, as you will, into the state of equilibrium. It's agitated, and then it starts to take shape and form and so forth. And so it wouldn't, without consciousness, it wouldn't do that. It's animating the whole show. It's uh, 
Dharite, I think, you know, Dhar, Dharani, to hold up, to support, take the jiva out of the body and it has no support. Right? It's the life of the whole thing. We are the life of the world. Certain things don't life are, you know, so to exist in, you know, like dirt or stand. Well, I think that that's not a very sound environmental outlook here. <laughs> I think that there's quite a bit of interdependence and uh, everything's growing. Well, there's, in a, well there's, there's life in the sky. Well, I guess you're saying yeah. essentially things still exist. Yeah. And there's life everywhere. It's Sarvagata, Krishna says in the second chapter. The ground is full of life. That's why life comes out of it. We're living in, in a more basic sense than again, animating, so why the shape? Why the ground? Why the... There's for a purpose to foster life, movement, and facilitate the karmic condition of the jiva. It's a pretty good word. You're not questioning Krishna's word, just whether the... There might be another translation for it. Another question? Stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanande. Mirandasya Gyanandana Salakaya Chakshuru Miritam Yena Tasme Sri Gurave Namah Vande Sri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sodita Gauragaye Pushpavanta Chitta Sando to Monuna Vandeham Sri Ramakrishna Abhaya Charanasago Sukodo Paramanando Sundro Subolo Priyo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Raganta Nomosuti Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Prashabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Sri Gauri Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Vajupisan nabayatma putanam ishvaropisan prakritin samadhisthaya sambhavamayatma maya So in text 6, Krishna speaks about his eternity. Question raised from Arjuna's doubt, voiced in text 4. There, the question of Krishna's omnipotence and his eternality were raised. So we heard about his omnipotence and today about his eternality. And eternality means eternality of Krishna. And it means as he is seated here on the chariot before Arjuna in this particular form, 
he says, Ajo Pesan. Although I am Ajo, unborn, Avyayatma. Avyaya means imperishable, and Atma means a number of things, one of which is form, mind, body. So our Bodhya, Seminole Acharya, the Vishwanathapati Thakur, and his follower, Balibhidibhushan, who wrote the first Gaudiya Vaishnava commentaries on Bhagavad Gita, sometime after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's departure, and both um, looked at the word in this way. Avyaya Atma Ajopi San. Although Krishna says I'm unborn and my body is imperishable. Bhutanam Ishvaropi San. And I'm the Lord Bhutam Ishvar. I'm the Ishwar of all the Bhutas, all beings. Prakriting Swam Adishthaya Sambhavami Atma Mayaya. By my own Swarup Shakti, Prakritim, Swam, by my own internal energy in which I am situated, where I can be found. This is my jurisdiction. There is another realm, material existence, and that is under the jurisdiction of my Bina Prakriti, Ashtara, my energy composed of the material, eight material elements. That is separated. That's mine too. But it's my separated energy. It's Mama Maya and it's Duratya, he said. Very difficult to overcome because it's mine. <laughs> I've put it in place. And without coming to me, he says, one can cross beyond it. And what is my, this is later chapters, but what is my position? As the Lord of all living beings, I have an imperishable form and that remains so. My position remains the same, even though I take birth. And so my birth is different. It's prakriting shamadishtaya, under the jurisdiction of my internal energy. Prakriting shamadishtaya sambhavami atmamaya. So in my, it means in my form, under the jurisdiction of my sarup shakti, never coming in touch with the material world, actually, by my magic, my maya, my yoga maya, yoga maya samavrita, he says later. Seventh chapter of the Gita. People don't know me, they're fools. They think that my body is something that I've assumed and I'm of a different nature, but I assume a body for some time, he says. Those are foolish people. No, I come. I don't come in touch with the material world. I remain under the auspices, under the influence of my divine Shakti, and thus I, I manifest Atmamaya, and I'm, I'm not easily perceivable for what I am by everyone. My Atmamaya, my Yoga Maya, Yoga Maya Samabrita. This, this, this is one of, the, of a number of very nice references in the Gita to Krishna's internal energy. The verse can be rendered in different ways. In fact, I've rendered it a little bit differently, but in writing, but this is one way, nice way. Either way, maybe the way I've written it there, this purport is the same. And as I say, this is one of the places, either Prakriting Swam, you can look at it, or Atmamaya, either way, or both ways, he's talking about his internal energy. So this is one of the three 
primary, if you will, principal energies, shaktis of Bhagavan Sri Krishna that are spoken about in the Gita. He also talks about what? Jiva Shakti and the Bahiranga or Maya Shakti. Later on in the seventh chapter, he says, What is it? Bhumir apo analo bayu kamano budareva cha hankara itiya me bina prakriti arashtara. Bina prakriti. This ashtara, eightfold, my material energy, constituted of earth, water, fire, air, ether, solidity, liquidity, heat, and so forth. Basic constituents. Then he says in the following verse, but he says that Jiva Bhuta Mahabahu Aparayam Itastvanyam Aparayam Itastvanyam Prakritim Vidhi Me Param Jiva Bhuta Mahabahu Yayedam There is another energy of mine, the Jiva Shakti, Tatasta Shakti. Tatasta means, Jiva Shakti Tatasta is another name for that, means what? Tatasta means in between, neither here nor there. Important point, why? We want to establish that in the Gita, Krishna's internal energy is mentioned. If we understand the intermediate energy, Bahiranga means the outside energy, made of the material elements. Jiva Shakti is, the, is also called Tatastha Shakti. This is found in Vishnu Purana and other places. It's not an uncommon term, Tatasta Shakti, Jeev Shakti, same. Tatasta Shakti means in between. It means, Tata means like a beach. So there's a line that demarks the water from the land. But you can't quite put your finger on it. You're either going to get wet or, or dry. So it's largely its identity, its position is defined largely by its environment if it's on the the dry land, then it becomes dried up, it becomes like a, like matter. And if it's on the wet side, it becomes fluid. So point is what? If there is a tatasta shakti, there have to be two other shaktis then for it to be in between. <laughs> That's unavoidable. You cannot just somebody say, well, the tatasta shakti is mentioned and the bahiranga shakti is mentioned, but you can't. If there's tatasta, means there must be another one. There must be three. So this is one reference, then, to the internal energy by which he manifests, never actually coming in touch with the Maya Shakti, who stands at a distance from him. Later in the ninth chapter, we also find a nice reference to that. Mahatmanastamamparta daivim prakriti maashrita. He describes his devotees. Mahatmanastamamparta. And then he said, there are my Great souls, Mahatmanas Tumam Partha, and he's describing his devotees, Daivim Prakriti Mashrita. He doesn't say Daivim inspired, he says Daivim Prakritim Ashrita. They Ashrita, they take shelter, these Mahatmas, under my Daivim Prakritim. So they come under the shelter, that means if they come under the shelter of the divine Prakriti, there has to be a shelter of that divine prakriti, rather than Bhagavan. So he has an internal energy. We call it antaranga shakti, means internal energy. We call it swarup shakti. We call it the primary shakti. In English, you might call it, probably just like to call it the internal energy. 
This is what governs the affairs of Krishna Lila. Radha Krishna Pranay Vikriti Ladini Shakti Rasmad. Ladini Sandini Samvit. These terms are not, they're emphasized by the Gaudiyas, but we find them. Svabhavika Jnana Balakriya Cha Prasya Shakti Bibhidaiva Sriyute. For example, this is from Svetashvatara Upanishad. And the terms Ladini, Sambit, Sandini, this can be found in the Puranas like Vishnu Purana and so forth, describing, or this is another way of saying it, Svabhaviki Jnana Balakriya Cha, Jnana Balakriya, is another way of saying Sandini, Sambit, Sandini, Shakti. So, Shakti, Shakti Tattva, this is the, how you say, this is the strong emphasis of the Gaudias. Amongst Vaishnavas, but no one gives such emphasis to the Shakti as the Gaudiyas. It brought them under suspicion. And it's at the time of the forming of, of the Chaitanya Sampradaya under the auspices of Sanatana Goswami, who was the architect, and Rupa Goswami, Jiva Goswami, and they, they were starting the forming the this Sampradaya, and they needed, they wanted to get, well, credibility amongst the other Vaishnav Sampradaya. So the so they wrote so many books, and they, and Sanatana Goswami and Vopalbhata uh, Goswami, great Sri Vaishnav previously from South India, they penned the Hari Bhakti Vilas with all the, the Sudachar, the activities, how they conduct themselves, the Gaudiyas, they had their philosophy and so forth. But even uh, after their passing and so forth, they can see that it was under, it was in its formative years, and considered a bit of an upstart by some. There's the famous instance in Jaipur where the deity of Govindaji was present and I believe that in the palace they must have had a deity of Narayan also. And there was two things. One, they placed Radha next to Govinda, Godius, and two, they first offered the prasad to Krishna and then they would give it to Narayan. <laughs> This was like, wait a minute, Narayan is the supreme god, Krishna is his avatar, what are you doing? And who's this lady standing there on the altar? This, you know, milk lady, milk maiden. You know, Lakshmi is Narayan's consort, and she's uh, quite opulent. So this was a controversy, and of course, then Bhavadibhidibhushan answered the controversy with his commentary on the sutras a commentary which the Gaudias didn't have, which also brought them into question, because in order to be established in the world of Vedanta, the circle of Vedanta as a strand or a color of Vedanta, a nuanced form of Vedanta, you had to have a sutra, a commentary on the Vedanta sutras. The Gaudias didn't have one. There was a reason they didn't have one. But when the occasion presented itself, that it was to their advantage to have one. Baladi Bhijabhushan wrote one. The story goes, of course, that he was challenged and he made his points, and they said, we don't even want to listen to you because you don't even have a commentary on the sutras. And so he asked for what, give me seven days or something like that, and he wrote it. That's the point, yeah. It's called Govinda Bhashya. It means Govinda speaks, the language of Govinda. So they, Govinda, the deity of Jaipur, which was Rupa Goswami's deity, who had transferred himself to Jaipur when the Mughals invaded Vrindavan, spoke the commentary. The Gaudis embraced this commentary. Govinda Basha 
of Balabhadebhadebhusan, and he establishes the position of Shakti there in relation to Bhagawan. So, controversial. With its emphasis on Shakti, you don't find that same kind of emphasis in Ramanuja, Madhva, Nimbarka, Balabhasampradaya, like you do in the Gaudias. It's so extreme, funny, interesting, I should say, in Bengal, where it has its origins in one sense, there's a prominence of the Shaktas, the worshippers of Devi. They even wrote their own book, the Devi Bhagavatam, later on. And it said so many things about the Devi Bhagavatam that are said about the Srimad Bhagavatam. And they wrote them all in their, in their rifts, if you will, religious rifts, with the Vaishnavas who worshipped Shaktiman, right? the source of the Shakti, and they worshipped the Shakti. And so they tried to make Devi supreme and so forth. But the Gaudis, Pujapachita Marjiv like to say sometimes that we are, what is it, super Shaktas, because we take such a strong position in relation to the personified internal energy, Ladini Shakti Mahabhav Swarupini Siradha. Therefore, Jai Radhe, this is the, the famous cry of the Gaudias. <clears throat> I've said many times that every religious tradition teaches that God is the most worshipable object. What do we teach? In contrast, we teach about the worshipable object of God. This is Radha in the eyes of Krishna. She is the most venerable. And of course, getting her pleasure is the way to endear oneself to Krishna. This is the strategy, then, of the Gaudias. And of course, some Gaudias take it so extreme that they don't even care about pleasing Krishna. Of course, he will be pleased. They just want to please Radha. So, so just anyway, point is that the Gaudiya Vaishnava, there's no sect like the Gaudias that emphasize the Shakti we emphasize it more than the shaktas in, in a more comprehensive way, not to a fault, denying the position of the shaktiman and so forth, and, and only in pursuit of mukti, worshippers of Devi in Bengal, Kali, Durga, same. You just want mukti. You know, there's a famous song by Govinda Das, Bajahure mana sinandanandana abhai charan vindure. Abhai charan. Prabhupada's name there, Abhay Charanana Bindure. That was the name Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvitaku gave him at birth. He had his name Abhay Charan, and she said, Sarasvitaku Prabhupada named him Abhay Charanana Bindu. So who's fearless at the feet, the lotus feet of Krishna? So, Bajahure Man, Govinda Das prays, Oh, my dear mind, Bajahure Man, Sri Nandanandan, please worship Nandanandan, Abhay Charanana Bindure, at whose lotus feet? One becomes fearless in a world of fear. Fear is the all-pervading influence in material existence. It's more powerful than sex, even fear. So, after all, we appear to be on death row, and it's you know it's not just an appearance. So, our existence, as we know it, is threatened. We're threatened with non-existence at every moment. Ayurharati by Pumsam Udyanastam So with the rising and the setting of the sun, Ayurharati, our life is being taken away, as we know it. Except for that one who is Uttamasloka Vartaya, always singing about Krishna. That has a different effect. So this song is about Krishna, but the Govindadas the singer of the song probably used to like to sing this song. There's many nice recordings of him singing it, even just by himself, with harmonium. and Very sweet. 
and very deep. And the story goes that Govindadas was actually a, he, from Bengal. He was a Shakti. He was a, a devotee of Devi. But sometimes you can approach the right person for the wrong reason, or you can approach the wrong person for the right reason. It happens. <laughs> sometimes you can approach the right person for the right reason. That's more rare. But Govindadas approached the wrong person for the right reason but she directed him to the right person. So this song is said to have come from Devi herself and said, what you want, that can be given by, by the son of Nanda. Your name is, should be Govinda Das. Just like we find in Brihad Bhagavatamrita also, Devi came in a dream, gave Gopal Mantra to, to the uh, mature Brahman, isn't it? And sent him that he, he worshipped her, she sent him in that direction. You belong over there. So Devi said, you belong. What you want, people worship me, they want liberation. Yeah. Okay, but what you want, that I can't give. What You should go over here. So this song came out of that. Very nice song in Bengali. So the point is anyway, the Gaudias, they have a strong emphasis on the Shakti. The whole of the metaphysical outlook of Jiva Goswami, Kolachintya Beda Beda Tattva. It all rests on this one word, Shakti. This is what his whole teaching arises out of, Beda Bed. That it's Shakti Parinambad, not Rivartavad. The world is a transformation, not of Bhagwan. No, Hiragyayatma. His form remains as it is. It doesn't transform into the world by a superimposition on Brahman, whatever that is. This, <laughs> this uh, idea, Shankar's idea is his Advaita Vedanta, is arises in the Vedanta Sutra, in the seventeenth sutra of the first adhyaya of the first chapter, around twelfth aphorism. I believe it says, Anandamaya Vyasa. It's talking about Brahman. Brahman is Anandamaya, filled with Ananda. It's a beginning of talking about that Brahman has qualities, actually. It is not joy. He's Anandamaya. Maya means like filled. He's filled with joy. He has the quality of joy. And this beginning to speak about quality of Brahman is for the purpose there in the sutras of distinguishing between the Brahman and Jiva. And this is his quality, Anandamai. And then it goes on to describe that the Jiva is not full of Ananda. They have Anu, Ananda, Ananda Khan, particle, but he's full of joy, Anandamaya, Vyasat. And so he makes this comparison, the Sutrakar, Vyas, between Brahman and the Jiva, they're different. He says, Beda Vyapadesha Cha. Beda Vyapadesha Cha. So, he says the Jiva is a difference. And there in 117, first chapter, first section, second chapter, 17th verse, in his commentary, Shankar says, he acknowledges that this sutra is talking about a difference, but he says the difference is that there's Saguna Brahman and there's Nirguna Brahman, and he makes up his whole idea that's nowhere found in the sutras. This is very objective. This isn't just a kind of a Gaudiya bias. You can look at it yourself and see. And other scholars have 
noted it as well, scholarly devotees, I should say. So that's where he makes his idea. Saguna Brahman, Nirguna Brahman. Saguna Brahman means, in his terminology, Brahman has a superimposition on itself and transforms as the world of Maya, which really doesn't exist. There is no objective world. But there's this Vyavaharic reality and Paramarktic reality. And then, after manifesting the Vyavaharic reality that doesn't really exist, I mean, you know, I know it sounds silly, but <laughs> that's what they say. Then Brahman manifests in that Vyavaharic reality as Ishwar. The term Ishwar is used here, Bhutanam Ishwar. Krishna is saying, although I am the Ishwar of all the entities, still I take birth and in a form that's imperishable. Well, this contradicts what Shankar is saying there. The Godis are strong on this point. In, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, through the pen of Krishna's Kaviraj, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, Vyas Branta. He says that Shankar's commentary is saying that Vyas is crazy, that Vyas doesn't know what he wants to say, so I'm going to say it for him. And he's referring right to this section here, where, you know, theology is meant to be a, a reasoning that is in concert with the scripture. There's no room for independent reasoning. It's reasoning in support of the scripture. So he injects independent reasoning, which is the beginning of the fall of everything in Western philosophy. <laughs> when Western philosophy unhooks itself from revelation, then you've got just freedom to think, and they just think themselves into you know, existentialism and various other forms of insanity. And, you know, that mind is just very mutable and you can think about things in so many different ways and it's endless. Therefore, what does the sutra say? Tarko apatishtana. By this, you get nowhere. By argument logic, you or I get nowhere. And if you say, well, that logic then gets nowhere. And we say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You get nowhere. Logic is always inconclusive. And that's... Anybody, a true logician will admit that as well. It doesn't bring you to conclusive truth. Just because you can make a logical argument doesn't mean that it's true. So Mahaprabhu says there, through the pen of Krishna Das Kaviraj, what he's done is he's, it, he's started this independent reasoning from the scripture. He's saying, Vyasa really doesn't know what he wants to say. I'm going to say it for him and change a few words here, more or less. And then he, he has this whole philosophy that flows from there. And every then statement, of which there are thousands, about the eternality, here's one of the form of Bhagavan, is all taken to be like, should be looked at indirectly. It's only really talking about the form of the Lord that is saguna, manifest within Maya and so forth. Now, an interesting point here should be noted that in spite of this explanation, which might be appealing to some people who think, yeah, the form of Krishna is eternal, The form of Krishna is, you know, because it it looks to be located in time and space. And we rather think of the Absolute as being beyond time and space. But Krishna is medium size, right? <laughs> he seems to be located within time and space. He walks from Govardhan to Yavat to Brindaban. He goes to Mathura and Dwarka. So he's in Dwarka. How can he be over here at the same time? He's supposed to be everywhere. How can his form 
be everywhere, all pervasive. So when we think of God as all pervasive, all accommodating, all inclusive. But to think that Krishna's form is somehow not such is a mistaken idea. I'm kind of going off here, but one way to think about it is this, that what is the most accommodating thing? It's not space, really. Unlimited space. Well, that gives you a lot of room. You know, the big opie stand on the beach and you can just see forever, you know, on the cliff and you just look out. Infinite space. But really what we're talking about, when we talk about Krishna, we're talking about that infinity, Brahman, if you will, infinite space, that is freeing us from the confines of time and space and our embodied condition, our limitations. We're confined by time and space, limitations. So to get beyond those limitations, the soul senses, I have something, there's something about me that's beyond, that I shouldn't be limited. That's why I've said before, in human society, what's happening in human consciousness is this self is rising up from the depths of matter from less complex forms of life, so through a consciousness-driven evolution. And in human life, it's above the surface, so to speak, to an extent that it can start to feel itself. That's why it, it thinks. In human society, we have a very powerful sense of identity, individual identity. I exist. The extent to which less complex forms of life experience this is very limited by comparison. So that nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul, so to speak, in human life. Wow. I mean, it's there all the time. It's driving the world. But human form of life gives vent to it. It's like probation in comparison to prison. You're like on probation. You've got human life. You can start to, you know, be what you are. Of course, if you don't, if you go against it, you go back into jail. There's transmigration, too. But the point is this. I've said it before. Why, this is our explanation, in human life, do we want to do things that only other forms of life can do? Like birds can fly in the sky. Fish can swim in the ocean. Birds don't try to swim to the bottom of the ocean. And fish don't try to you know, fly over the moon. But in human life, we try to fly in the sky, we try to plumb the depths of the ocean, we try to do everything because there's a sense that arises that we can do everything, that we shouldn't be limited by time, by space, by our bodily confines. This is arising. This naturally arises. Consciousness unto itself. That's why in the ancient world everyone thought consciousness was primary. Because unto itself, without any imposed you know, doctrine, it feels itself to be bigger than the confines that it's presently experiencing. So, to go beyond time and space, so God may I be identified as, even in Christianity, they identify there's an initial cause of the world, the world is caused, and it's caused by a causeless cause. We know, they say, the world, we know the world has a cause from science, has a beginning, and they would have a linear time, we'd have a cyclical time, but we don't disagree with that. We say it has a beginning, it expands, it contracts, it starts again, and so forth. But that beginning in time 
as a cause outside of time. Maybe these are interesting arguments, but we sense, at any rate, that we can live beyond time and space, right? We can live forever and and so forth. So this sense of God being all-pervasive, that's, and beyond space and time, that's natural. Think, that's when we look at Krishna again, and there he is, just this, you know, there he is of the form, confined by time and space, it appears. But what that form is, it's, it, according to the sacred text, of course, that form is Brahman. Here it is said right here. That body is Abhyatma. It's imperishable. So what does it represent then? It represents a, a, a increase of accommodation. In other words, we feel limited and constrained by time and space. But at the same time, we are not just living for space. We are living for affection. We are living for affection. Krishna is Brahman in a form of personified affection. So when we go from world of time and names and forms, time and space, to Brahman, beyond time and space, we get a relief, that's mukti, but how much affection is there? And what is more accommodating, space or love? Like I've said before, if you love someone, you can live in a cave with them, in the hollow of a tree, how much space do you need? So love is more accommodating. So when we go from Brahman to Vaikuntha, all of a sudden there's shapes and forms and so forth. But this is ecstasy, this is Brahman, Anandamai. Brahman is Anandamai, full of Ananda. Here it is, concentrated Ananda, concentrated Ananda. And so that plane of Vaikuntha is more accommodating because it's got affection, reciprocal dealing. And Goloka, of course, Krishna becomes even smaller. <laughs> Vaikuntha looks smaller than Brahman. And Goloka looks smaller than Vaikuntha. It's just a little village. Krishna doesn't have four arms and so forth. He's not big like Narayan. But he's big with affection there. So that is the idea, that Brahman is in a concentrated form of affection. And the Leela shows that despite its appearance, his form is beyond time and space. Like the Dhammadar Leela we were hearing the other morning. Krishna was tied around the belly with a rope, right? And when Mother Yasoda was trying to tie him, it was two inches too short. So she got two more inches and two more inches. He wasn't getting fatter and fatter and fatter all the time. He was staying the same size. And no matter how much rope she put together, she couldn't tie him. But when her affection to tie him so that he wouldn't run away <laughs> with her spirit increased, and she began to perspire, as Sanatana Prabhu described, as a sign of her, her bhakti, her love, the labor of her love. Then he agreed to be tied. He didn't shrink up. He stayed the same size. The implication is that his form is everywhere. You could take all the rope in the world, and it would still be two inches too short. And if you have these two inches, effort and mercy from Bhagavan, then you can tie him up. This is what the two inches are. So, he's a form of affection. And think about it, then, form, we'll think in one sense is a limitation, but in another sense, it facilitates. What is art without the canvas where it can be drawn on and expressed in form? Form facilitates. It's, it can be looked at as being more 
than just the abstract idea that's locked up in the artist's head comes out to take the form and it's appreciated. So he's the form of Ananda. His form is full of Ananda, I should say. He's full of Ananda. And, <laughs> and so now, this is a point I want to make as well. While we speak about all this, and we have to give some idea to help us understand in our rational so-called times about the form of God being eternal, being all-pervasive, being Anandamaya and so forth, as I mentioned. And one might gravitate towards Advaita Vedanta or a Neo-Advaitan concept where you don't have to think that Krishna's pastimes are real or so it's thought or his form is, you know, it's just a story, it's just a myth and so forth. This is an entirely wrong reading of traditional Dvaita. Every Advaitan, you look Shankar's commentary, the great Madhusudan Saraswati's commentary and so forth, and every other... Uh, I was reading Maharishi's commentary a while back. He had a commentary on it. He was in the Dvaitan too. Six chapters of the Gita. They all say, Krishna's form is real. The Krishna actually appeared in this world. They don't look at this. It's just some story. Now Neo-Dvaitans will look at just the story to, t- to give an idea. We don't have to think that it's real. Every absolute, the, the absolute is just Brahman, formless, and so forth. That's a convenience, but that's not what the Dvaitans teach at all. As much as we may differ with Shankar on his idea about the descent of Bhagwan, the Ishwar, as he will call him, and it being his idea of Saguna Brahman and so forth, as much as we will differ with him on that, he's right there with us. That Krishna appeared in the world, he has a form like that, these leelas took place and so forth. They're not like just stories that you just learn a lesson from. It's a, it's a, for him... It's a real event, of course, in a world that doesn't really exist. It's a little complicated, but, but... And he said things like, of course, my aspiration is just sit on the Jamuna and remember the pastimes of Krishna. For Shankar, there is no form of God that is more complete, more attractive, more appealing, more full than Sri Krishna in Vrindavan. Even though he thinks the form is a temporary manifestation of Brahman for the Vyavaharic reality to help us get out and so forth. Still, So if you, if 75% of the devotees had as much appreciation for Krishna as Shankar does, they would be doing good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he you know, looks at him in a way that philosophically might be, it appears to be derogatory. <laughs> he had more faith in Krishna and Krishna's appearance and the power of the form of Krishna. Even when he's calling it Saguna Brahman form rather than the transcendental form. We may criticize him and say he says this, but many devotees really, by their practical example, show they have no attraction for the form of Krishna, practically. That's just a theoretical person. When we get serious about bhakti, when we get ruchi, then the, the theoretical person becomes a real person. A theological person, I should say, becomes a real person. So here that real person is talking about himself. And it's clear from the Gita here that, as I say, the internal Shakti is being introduced in this text. And again, there are other places where it's also mentioned. This is, uh, it takes a Godi to, I guess, to bring that out because, again, we are, have so much a strong emphasis on the Shakti, our ideas that the Shakti, he does what he does. So by describing him in terms of his Shakti, we actually know him better. If you describe a person in terms of what he does by his energy, then you know him 
well. So his internal energy is referenced here for the first time, and he appears under the influence of that. Even though he's the supreme controller, he appears like a human being. He appears following the orders of Madhya Yashoda. Here he's Parthasarati, following the orders of Arjuna. This is a wonderful thing. This is, this people think, what kind of God is this? We think that is wonderful. That is, that is Madhurya. That is sweet that he's done such a thing. So he's talking about his sweet self here. Even though he's Ishwar, Bhutanam, he takes birth in his imperishable form. So he's eternal. He was there in that form, speaking to the Sun God. He's here in this form. We may change our form. Our form in the material world is under the influence of Pop and punya of karma, good and bad. His is not like that. He's Ishvara Bhutanam. He's the controller of the living beings. He is the awarder of their pious results and impious results that constitute their bodily existence, life after life, that fuels their continued birth in this world. And he's, as the Ishvara, He's Ishwar, that means also Ishwar Bhutanam Tishtati. That means he's referring to his Mahavishnu form, his Paramatma aspect. Although I'm the Lord of the world, that's Paramatma. His jurisdiction is this world. I appear within it in my own imperishable form. So it means by saying Bhutanam Ishwaropi means I'm controlling the karma. Yet I appear in the world, so my appearance is not under the influence of karma. That's why I don't forget, because I don't change. I don't die. <laughs> I'm eternal. I don't die. So what I did thousands and millions of years ago, uh, I, I remember that, and now I'm doing the same thing, telling this to you, this secret, Arjuna. And as you can see, it is kind of a secret. Not everybody can understand. Any question? Yes. No one really say that we will go like beyond space once we get basically liberated ourselves. Well, not liberated, but like get devotional liberation. Well, not in that frame. Anyway, I'm thinking like that kind of implies that we'd be um, all pervaded at that point. If you're not limited by space, wouldn't that mean that we're all pervaded? But that's like against the glory of Siddhanta. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that living in the Sarvagata is everywhere. But he says, by way of being connected to Krishna, who's everywhere. So Krishna's everywhere. That's hard to understand. But Krishna's form is all pervasive. He showed it to Mother Yashoda. Right? He showed that in his childhood form, the whole universe was inside of him. So if you're attached to Krishna, then in that way, he's beyond time and space. You're beyond time and space. You're everywhere by way of associating with the one who's everywhere. He's not limited by time and space. You're with him. Where are you? <laughs> That's the idea. Another question? Some abstract concepts. <laughs> All right. Yeah. There's one more thing. Yesterday you mentioned that Mother Yashoda called Krishna Atokshacha. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind that? Well, I think that Ajiv Goswami makes a point like that in his Krishna Sandarbha in relation to that verse of Bhagavatam I quoted to say this is a name for Krishna also, I believe, in relation to maybe the Shakatasur or the killing of Bhutana. That's something I can't remember exactly, but at that time. Of course it refers to him. He's 
transcendental adhoksaja means like beyond the alphabet a jaw beginning and the end of the Sanskrit alphabet beyond it as <laughs> in the Brahminings it means tra- so often we refer to him as aprakrita and Narayan as adhoksaja it means in one sense overtly transcendental Narayan's overtly transcendental. Krishna is aprakrita. looks like material, but he's aprakrita. He's completely transcendental. But it can well as well refer to him. All right, let's stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Sisi Krishna Arjun ki jai. Gaur Bhaktivinda ki jai. Vanchakal Paturubhis Chakrabhis Indhuji. Kanam Bhagavad Gita.